Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, The New Testament Modern Evangelical Version. And the author is Pastor Robert Thomas Helm. And Pastor Bob joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Pastor Bob. Yes, uh, it's it's a pleasure to be with you. And um, I would uh, like to tell you a little bit about the uh, New Testament Modern Evangelical Version. A lot of people will probably be asking, uh, we already have a lot of uh, modern Bible translations already, why another one? The real intention of this is to um, take the New Testament and put it in modern colloquial English uh, so it's easy to understand, and it is also intended to be a very Christ-centered, grace-centered translation. It tries to bring out the nuances of, of grace in the New Testament. Um, so that's its, its intention, and that's why it's called the modern evangelical version. Modern, it's very readable, up-to-date English, and evangelical, it's very centered on grace and on the gospel. So that's the real intention behind it. Now, you have studied this for some years to make this translation from the original Greek to a 21st century uh, English. Uh, How long did it take you? It took me approximately nine years. Um, I could have gone faster with it, but I wanted to do a very careful, good job of translating, and I wanted to, um, to make it as up-to-date as I possibly could, and as easy to understand as I possibly could, and still make it um, quite accurate. You call it a conservative translation. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that I, um, basically, I am, I do take the Bible as the Word of God. I um, believe that um, it is the inspired Word of God, I, I take the Bible as real history, and I do believe that uh, God has revealed himself in his word. I, I believe that the, the stories in the Bible are accurate and are, are part of history, and I do believe in, in the miraculous, that God um, can perform miracles and has intervened in history to perform miracles, the most awesome of which was his work in Jesus Christ. So with, with many different translations out there, I'm sure there are others that have been translated from the Greek. What is unique? What would you say is most unique about this translation? The thing that is most unique about this translation is that it is both readable and accurate, and it is also very Christ-centered. Um, And I'm not trying to say that other translations don't attempt this also. No translation is perfect, but these these are the goals of this translation, and this is what makes it unique. Um, This is its intention. Now, when you translate, obviously some words don't translate perfectly. uh, And you talk about a dynamic equivalent. 
Explain yeah. that. Okay, there are two there are two types of translation basically. There is formal equivalence and there's dynamic equivalence. And there there's always a shade um one shades into another. You a formal equivalent translation is one that attempts to be word for word uh in translating. However, no translation really accomplishes that. Um that's not possible because um, of the differences in language. So every translation is somewhat dynamic equivalent. Some are just more so than others. This translation, wherever it is possible to translate word for word and get a good uh, translation into modern English, it does so. But where um, that is not possible, instead of translating word for word, basic thoughts are translated. And um, I do not believe, well, I do believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I do not believe that God dictated the Bible word for word. Um, these were thoughts that were conveyed to um, the human authors who then wrote in their own language. So I don't see anything wrong with um, translating thoughts rather than literal words in some cases where you would get a, an extremely wooden translation if it were translated word for word everywhere. But I've tried to stay very close to the sense of the text, and where possible, yes, I have provided a word for word translation, but that has not always been possible. As you translated, were there some surprises as you went through this uh, verse by verse? Were there some things that just stood out like never before? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, Can you give us some examples? Yes, there's one, one in particular I'll just share with you. Um, it was a new thought for me. In the Gospel of Luke, we're all familiar with, well, I shouldn't say all, but if you're familiar with the Bible, you're, you're familiar with the story of how Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And um, the story in most translations is that um, Joseph and, he, and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, and Mary was pregnant with a baby, and there was no room for them in the inn. Um, so they went out to the stable, and Jesus was born in a manger. The interesting thing, however, is that the word that has been translated in in many of the translations in Luke 2 and verse 7, it really, it could mean in, but in other places it is used for a single room. And it's probably better translated guest chamber rather than room. So the thinking of many scholars is that um, this was not actually an inn, but a guest chamber in a house. And there was no room for them because there were a lot of people crowded into that house because the census was taking place. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting one for me, and I had not thought of that before. But in doing study about it, I, after research, I decided to render it. There was no room for them in the guest chamber rather than there was no room for them in the inn. I did put an end note on that and left the inn as an alternate translation. This is not absolutely unique to the modern evangelical version. Some other translations have rendered it that way, but um, it, go, it goes a little bit against the old tradition of the end. 
Right, right. Now you favor what is called conditionalism. Now, what do you mean that you favor this? What What is conditionalism? Okay, conditionalism is the belief that life, eternal life, and immortality are found only in Jesus Christ, and that man or the human being is a whole person. Uh, basically, that human beings are souls rather than having souls. And I know this again, some of the things here are a bit untraditional, uh, but this has wide support throughout the scholarly community today, including many evangelical scholars. Um, this translation um, basically accepts the conditionalist position as, as favored. Um, and rather than using the word soul, has attempted to find other words that um, reflect better the holistic nature of, of, of human beings as they're presented in Scripture. Basically, conditionalism is, in my thinking at least, is very closely connected with, with grace, because um, eternal life and immortality are gifts. They're not something that are innate to human beings. They're found outside of us in the person of Jesus Christ, and they're credited to us through faith in him. So um, that's, that's the concept there. I think it would be good for you to share a few verses with us uh, to kind of show this 21st century English translation of the Greek. All right. Um, just to, to put things in very um, modern terms... Go over here to the Gospel of John. Um, John chapter 1 and verse 13. Um, the, the literal tra translation that you'd find, for example, in the old KJV, the King James Version, uh, uses the word bloods here. Now, the modern evangelical translation renders it God's children are not born from genetic lines nor as a result of physical passion or a man's desire. They are born of God. Um, it has attempted to use very up-to-date language, you know, using the, word, the term genetic lines. The, um, the literal Greek actually says bloods. Uh, that was, in those days, that was the, um, the best way to indicate um, a physical um, relationship. But... Um, the more up-to-date language would, would speak in terms of genetics. So I, I use the term genetic lines there, which I really think conveys the sense that John was trying to get across when he used that term bloods. Bloods doesn't con um, communicate very much to people in the modern world, but genetic lines certainly does. That's just an right. example of uh, the very up-to-date language that you have in here. At the end of each chapter, you have endnotes. Now, what do these endnotes do? What are, what are they uh, revealing? Okay, the endnotes are included for two reasons. Um, when you consult the different Greek manuscripts, there are uh, some differences in how they read. The basic message, and this should be brought across very clearly, some people think that the whole Bible, you know, could have been changed. That's not true. We have 
uh, Greek manuscripts that go back to the beginning of the second century AD, and we know that the basic message of the New Testament has remained the same, but there are some different wordings in the different manuscripts here and there. And the attempt has been to get as close to what the original autographs, that is the the first um, documents that the apostles wrote, to get as close to the wording as possible. But in some cases, it's not clear which, which manuscript preserves the original reading. And when you're not sure about that, it's good to, to, um, to place um, an alternate reading in a footnote or an endnote um, to indicate that there is some uncertainty. So that's one of the purposes of the endnotes. The other purpose is um, in some places in the text where um, some clarification is needed to help people better understand what it is saying, um, there's been a bit of commentary in the in the end notes um, just to help the reader better understand the text. There's one I'll just point out in in Luke chapter ten. There's a classic example of um, of um, where there is a um, two different readings in the um, manuscripts. Uh, Luke chapter ten and verse one. Sometime later, the Lord appointed. 70 other disciples is how the um, modern evangelical version reads. Some translations read 72, and that's because some manuscripts say 72 other disciples and some 70. The evidence is almost evenly evenly balanced between 70 and 72, and um, it's a toss-up which one you go with. I chose to go with 70 and put 72 in the end note, but I could have gone the other way. In fact, I debated it very much which way I was going to go. But as I say, one manuscript will say 70, man, 70 disciples and another 72, and we're not sure which was the original. Now, also at the end of each uh, book, there's a New Testament book, there's questions. Now, what are these questions? What are they intended to do? Those questions are basically intended as a study guide for people who... Well, they can use them as you know individually, um, if they you know as they're studying the, the the book. But it's also if people want to do a group study, like a small group Bible study, these are good questions that can be posed um, for further research, and um, that's their intention. The answers aren't given to the questions, but in most cases. Um, there are passages in the te- from the text that are given where um, you can get some ideas to what the answer might be. Um, in some cases, they deal with doctrinal questions that where different Christian denominations might have different opinions. And again, the answer isn't given, um, but it, it causes people to think about the, these questions and the texts that are related to them and attempt to get a real biblical answer to the questions. But the, the real idea behind this was, ideally, it's for, good for small group Bible study, um, because um, these are good questions for a group to discuss. And that was my thinking behind that. This is something that is unique to the modern evangelical version. I don't know of any other Bible translation that has put a study guide at the end of each book. 
We've been listening to Pastor Robert Thomas Helm, and Pastor Bob is the author of his book, The New Testament Modern Evangelical Version. Pastor Bob, tell us how to get your book. Okay. First of all, just a, a, a little thought here. I'm really not the author. I'm the translator. Okay. <laughs> this was written very in well. the first century. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, well. how, how, can I get, how can you get it? Right. Um, you can obtain the book from um, Ex Libris Publishing. You can obtain the book from Amazon.com. And you can also obtain the book from Barnes & Noble. Those are the three sources that I know are marketing the book at the present time. Um, there might be others. I'm not sure, but I, I definitely know they, they could, that they can uh, supply you those three with the New Testament modern evangelical version. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Bob, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. It's been a pleasure, and I hope that this um, New Testament is a blessing to many people. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management, the holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness, how emotions are directly related to physical illness, and how to read your body like a book. Dr. DeVette will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent Live, every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirit Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Furl Not Thy Talons, and the author is J.G. Morgan. And John joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, John. How are you doing, sir? Great to have you with us. Uh, you have a very long career in the military uh, for 32 years and, and uh, different branches of the military. We'll learn more about that a little later, but uh, this book is a real thriller dealing with terrorism and 
and of course uh, a commander of an ultra-secret team attached to the CIA, this Major Franklin Williamson, and sounds like he's the he's he's a real hero, this type of guy, right? Uh, well, that's what I wanted to portray him as, uh, not particularly as a hero, but as a patriot who is concerned about what's happening to his country and doing everything he can to help it out. And willing to put himself right on the line, even to sacrifice himself if he has to. Exactly right. Well, that's... Exactly right. Uh, that's a hero in most people's minds, but you know, I, I hear what you're saying. It's uh, you do what you have to do. I, you know, often when we're faced with uh, big challenges, it's most of us haven't been faced with the annihilation of a, of his whole team on a rescue mission. But that 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 happens in real life, and as you say, I think you said that this was based on a, a true story. That is very true. I, during my military experiences, I, experiences, I had uh, the privilege of working with some of the special forces type uh, SEALs, uh, and I was an airborne ranger myself, and uh, I have nothing but high respect for every one of them. So, real quick, tell us about your military career. Well, I began my career actually in 1961 with the uh, what used to be called the Strategic Air Command of the branch of the Air Force, the nuclear arm, B-52 bombers and missiles. Uh, I was a security officer with them. Uh, after a time, I wanted airborne ranger training, which, of course, I couldn't get there, so I entered service transferred into the United States Army, attended Airborne school, ranger school, <laughs> of course, during that period of time, you know, you know what that meant. <laughs> right, yeah. And, uh, I, well, after serving with that for all over the world, in some sticky situations, I should say, uh, I was offered the opportunity to go full-time with the Kentucky Army National Guard as a combat engineer advisor. And so I did accept, and that's how I finished my career. Well, as we, as I mentioned, 32 years in the military of the United States, and, of course, uh, we always salute everyone that is willing to do that. That is uh, very noble, and, and I'm sure, uh, like you say, you, because of what you, your training, you were in some sticky situations. Well, they, there were times when, you know, it was pretty hectic, but I don't really regret any of them, I'll be honest with you. This is the greatest country in the world, and bar none, and we should do what we can to help it stay that way. So what led to the this book? What was, were this, uh, I know you say it's based on a true story, but of course a lot of people hear true stories, but, the, but that doesn't uh, encourage them to write the book. <laughs> Basically, 9-11 is, in a way, led me to thinking about it, and well, it, it just stemmed from that, that I, that I thought the story should be told, and mm-hmm. I wrote it. <laughs> Right. So, Major Franklin Williamson, the commander of an ultra-secret team attached to the CIA. 
So what was their mission? Their mission began to gather intelligence from a high-profile journalist who was uh, thought to have been kidnapped in the Middle East. They couldn't confirm that, the Central Intelligence Agency, of course. So he and his team were sent to discover whether this actually was true or not. Uh, unfortunately, his mission was compromised before they even started. And he was captured, and uh, events led, and events from there, it went on from there. True, true to life, this uh, journalist had been captured. But... Uh, and there's well, the, uh, I don't, without giving up the total story, sure, that's basically sure. the, what it was. And we've got an undercover agent of a terrorist organization. Uh, I guess he uh, doesn't stay true. Is that part of the problem? Very true. This, this uh, undercover agent, a female, was working for the uh, terrorist, a splinter group of Hezbollah itself. And... Uh, well, she uh, she had been sent to Washington to gather what information she could, and she well uh, became involved in the uh, plot itself, um, unbeknown to the major himself, of course, and she she is the one that uh, betrayed him. Well, and he seems to be right on the edge of uh, being slaughtered himself. Uh, as you put it, he witnesses the beheading of a man who refused to bend to the yoke of oppression. Seems like uh, there's no hope for him, but uh, he's determined to overcome any obstacle. That is true. His training uh, kicked in, and uh, he had uh, been imprisoned by the uh, terrorist organization itself in the same cell with this uh, journalist who accidentally, who accidentally, I should say, was his lover in his real life. And uh, he did manage to overcome and escape. But the, the whole underlying current there is the determination of his team. They would not, they themselves refused, even though the CIA washed their hands of it, they refused. And they did manage to overcome. Well, that's as, the... As it turned out. That's the determination of the human spirit, which is a theme of your book. That's exactly right, sir. The determination, the loyalty to your team members, and the pride in your team members. Now, that's one thing uh, I've always loved about our country. I think everybody feels that. You don't leave an American behind. That's exactly right, sir. That's one of the primary things they drum into. You don't leave a team member behind. You bring him out or her, whichever sure. case may be. Well, and, you know, even if it means putting your life on the line, and often that that's what is required. That is correct. So... And, uh, very proud of that. So when you look at terrorism today, of course, this is a big part of your plot. Uh, uh, they'll, they'll do anything, won't they? I mean, there's nothing that that they won't do. They won't stop it at, at anything. Terrorists 
have a single purpose in mind. That is the subjugation of our way of life. And they'll do anything they can to do that. Uh, there are some who call that loyalty to their cause. Uh, I really can't judge. Maybe it is. But their cause is not my cause. Yeah, Simple as that. Well, there's, uh, you know, there's people who follow their personal beliefs, of course, of uh, of right, and there are people who uh, can see wrong clearly, and often that goes up against uh, those who are, at that moment in time, have power over you, and it's, it takes a, a real strong person, and I guess this is what this Major Franklin Williamson is all about. That's very true, sir. He is what, well, it's not popular to say, but he is a patriot. And a patriot believes in his country and his beliefs, and he won't compromise. And that's why I wanted to portray him as that. So you look at this whole terrorist situation, uh, do you think the terrorists are going to win out? No, sir. No, sir. Terrorism has been going on for thousands of years. It's been going on since the Crusades. I mean, it's, it's a fact of life. It's, this is nothing new. It has simply escalated to a higher level with the technology and the resources we have today. Will it stop? No, it will not. You cannot defeat a determined terrorist. You can only uh, cause him to submit, but you cannot defeat him as far as that's concerned. You think- and unfortunately, that's a fact of life today. Uh, there's not only, if you use the word terrorist, that's, there's not only terrorists in the Middle East or throughout the other parts of the world. There's terrorists right here in this country. There are many organizations that could be classified as terrorists. They just don't go as harshly, treat uh, things as harshly as they do elsewhere. Do you think there can ever be peace in the Middle East? No. There will never be peace in the Middle East. If you read your Bible, and I am a Christian, if you read your Bible, you will see that the Middle East will always be a hotbed until... Well, for the end of time, as far as that's concerned. Their Muslim beliefs clashes with the Christian beliefs. It's Now, the the true Muslim believes in peace and accommodation, but unfortunately, the true Muslim is in a minority. And as long as there are different beliefs, you're going to have division, you're going to have dissension, and unfortunately you're going to have actions as we witness today against each other. The Bible foretells of this great battle, we've heard it called Armageddon. Do you think the United States will play an important role in this? The Bible does not speak of the uh, does not speak of the United States. Uh I believe that there was, they will have a strong influence in it. Now, as to whether 
as a nation they will, I, I really don't know, to be truthful with you. Uh, I believe that uh, our Christian beliefs will will portray that uh, that the as the uh, second coming of Christ, as as you say, Armageddon, which leads up to Armageddon, and uh, is eventually the uh, result of Armageddon. Uh, as a nation. Well, it really would be a question. It says uh, the nations of the north shall come down, and it does speak of the western. But now, whether that includes the United States as one of them, well, uh, I really can't say. Well, getting back to your plot, it seems like this theme of this fierce loyalty of the team members to the major and and uh you know their resourcefulness and uh determination uh, that is the glory of your book well uh, that that that's what what I wanted to portray the the let's say the loyalty of not particularly i'm going to use the word men but i now it's not gender relationship sure. because there are there are women involved in it as well uh the attachment that they form to each other and the loyalty that they give each other freely. Nobody makes them do it. And that's what eventually leads up to the, hopefully, conclusion. Uh, hopefully this will go on the other series with the major, but for this particular book, there are some sad but good things that come out of it. And I hope people that read it will will realize that. Well, if everyone loves patriotic books of loyalty and honor, they'll really enjoy Furl Not Thy Talons. And the author, J.G. Morgan, we've been listening to John. Tell us about his book. John, tell us how to get your book. Uh, You can, uh, Ex Libra. On their website, it's uh, available on most uh, uh, mail-order bookstores, uh, Amazon.com, those type of Or they can, uh, if they see uh, the book, they can uh, order it direct from me. Any of those ways will reach them. Probably the best way is through exlibra.com. Well, thank you so much, John, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Well, I certainly appreciate the honor. I thank you very much. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. 
This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Kirk Deswalt and learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry. Every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rockstar System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from their competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDeswalt.com. So you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field. So more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Togginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Roxbury Redemption, and the author is Dr. Earl Williams, and Dr. Williams joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Dr. Williams. Hello. How are you? Well, I'm doing great, and what a great story, your own story, this autobiography uh, from, from an ex-felon to a doctor of psychology, right? Yes, that's true. And with most that go through, go down this road that you went down, uh, never recover, unfortunately. Uh, but your story is one of hope and also one of uh, kind of a self-guidebook as well as uh, one of hope and inspiration. But uh, let me just read just uh, a few things. Uh, you say this is a story of how uh, an ex-felon becomes a doctor with the help of three great religions, Catholic, Baptists, and Nation of Islam. Uh, you also say this book outlines specific actions and beliefs one can use to turn their own lives around. It is for offenders, ex-offenders, and those at risk of offending. So it's for all and everyone what was the, I, I guess we'll have to go back, go back uh, to your early years. Tell us a little bit about growing up and what was all the stumbling blocks for you, doctor? Okay, I, I had stumbling blocks, but I also had really good things in my life. I had a two-parent family, which was great. I was the oldest of three children. Um, and then there were some stumbling blocks along the way. You know, I mean, I, um, uh, my mother was told I, we were... I was raised initially in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and that's where I went to school. And I started school at the age of four, and my mother was told that I was mentally retarded when I was in kindergarten. You know, they said, if this boy gets to the eighth grade, it would be a minor miracle. Um, I got to the eighth grade, by the way. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but at and, that and, time, the, at that time, you're hearing these things too, right? I mean, th this isn't... Well, well I... I didn't hear these things at oh, that time. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Because I'm so, I'm so young. I, I don't even know what that means. That's you know true. I mean? right. You know, I'm, I'm four years old. Okay. Right. And, 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 and back then, you know, see, these days, children um, are not allowed to start school until they're about six. But back then, 
the attitude was, if this boy can walk, send him to school. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm in school at, 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 at the age of four. That's why by the time I got to high school, when I started high school, I was 12 years old. Oh, my goodness. You know, and, and I, I went to a parochial school, and I was the only black at that time in the school. You know, after I'd been there a couple of years, um, others uh, uh, came in. You know, but um, when I was in high school, one of my, my homeroom teacher said, any cause that accepts you is hard up. And my father, probably in a fit of being angry at me, said, you're too stupid to finish high school. You should drop out and get a job. You know, so I had that to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, just other things sort of just piled on top of that. I was, I was in the Air Force. My father signed me up for it because I was only 17. I couldn't sign myself in. And he, he put me in the Air Force, and I was in the Air Force for four years. And while I was in the Air Force, I had two congressional investigations for racism. You know, so I had a few issues along the way. Were you, of, were you oh, angry? Were, did, you, did you feel anger at that time? No, I didn't feel angry. You didn't? Huh. I felt insulted. I okay. Felt, uh, I, I, I felt uh, abused. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel anger, you know, because it was during that time that we were having civil rights demonstrations and um, a lot of uh, 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 racial turmoil was going on anyway, you know. So it was just mm-hmm. what was happening at that day and time. And then that fateful day when you came home to see your mom. Well, I, I, was, I was discharged from the Air Force when I was uh, 21. And... I was going to college. I decided to go to college. And so I'm going, and when I came out of the service, I didn't know it, but my parents had divorced and they weren't living together. So that was a shock to the system. Um, so, but I decided to go to college because I wanted to be a, and I, I wanted to be an astronaut or mm-hmm. a rocket scientist, mm. you know? So I was in college studying aeronautical and space engineering. And one day, I was on my way to school, where um, at the end of the semester, at time of exams, and I had um, an epiphany, for a lack of a better word to explain it, that told me to go to my mother's house. I went to my mother's house, and to make a long story short, I found that she was dead. Now, the thing that added sort of salt to the wound, so to speak, is the fact that my mother was a Navajo. Uh, she was raised by black people, but she, and she was a Navajo. And she used to tell me stories about how they used to uh, put furniture against the door to keep out the Ku Klux Klan, hmm. where she was raised in Alabama. When I called her job, she said, she had told the, the people at her job that um, she was brushed by a car. Um, and it was a white male that was driving. So in my mind, the white man finally got her. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, and understand that at that time with the civil rights things and all the things that were going on, you know, um, that was my conclusion. And so now I'm very angry. Mm-hmm. And so and want, I, and want revenge. I want revenge. I want revenge, but I'm not a violent person, so I'm, it's not like I'm going to go out and, 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 and hurt somebody mm-hmm. because of it, but I am nonetheless very angry, and I do want revenge. And what I ended up doing 
is falling in with the wrong crowd because it's just amazing how the wrong crowd will show up when you're vulnerable. And uh, went out into the, uh, there was a group of us, a gang of us, and we would go to the suburbs, um, ostensibly the white suburbs, and break into warehouses. Never, we never went into anyone's house, never went someplace where there was like a, a security guard, so we weren't putting anyone's life in danger. These were empty warehouses, not empty, but um, warehouses that didn't have anyone in them. And we would steal televisions mm -hmm. and jewelry, and depending on what we had broken into. And so I did that for a couple of years and got caught multiple times and was given probation multiple times until finally they got tired of that and decided to put me in the penitentiary. So how long were you in? Well, I, I, I was given a sentence of two and a half to three years, which is the minimum state sentence. You know, so I was there for about 13 or 14 months. And I was moved from the maximum security penitentiary, which is called Walpole in Massachusetts, to the minimum security, which is called the uh, forestry camps. So, what, so that's where I did the majority of my time. So what was the next epiphany then? The, the next just uh, how you could go from that to what you are today, this doctor of psychology, very successful, writing a book, uh, helping people. What, what, what happened? Well, the, the, the thing is that while I was in prison, um, which is obviously a time when you have plenty of time to think, you know, um, it occurred to me, it initially occurred to me that my mother would not be proud of what I'm doing in reaction to her death. She would not be proud of me. So I had to find a way to forgive the person that I held responsible for my mother's death. Mm -hmm. I had to forgive him. I, there, there is no way in the world I could go through the rest of my life and have any type of success without forgiving the person that I blamed for hurting me. Mm -hmm. And I found a way to do that. Mm -hmm. you know? And so after I found a way to do that, then I was able to uh, 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 put down that, box, that, that, that bag of rocks of hate and anger that I was carrying around. I was able to put that down and leave it alone. So that was the next um, big issue that had happened to me, you know, then when I got out, I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And that's another story. <laughs> so you, so your book really, you share your background, uh, you know, the, all these Herculean challenges, as you put it, uh, you have all of this, uh, dealing with anger and grief, but then you all of a sudden turn your life and you, you've got all kinds of power of positive encouragement and positive thinking. I mean, you go from one extreme to the other. I did. I did. And, 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 and that's where I was inspired by other people because then I met people that, that had positive thoughts about me. I had a girlfriend, um, and, 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 and my girlfriend thought I was brilliant. You know, we would have conversations two and three hours long, and she just thought I was brilliant. And no one had ever told me that before. 
you know. And then um, um, it was also the time of the beginning of affirmative action. And with uh, uh, affirmative action, they had these um, prep schools in Boston. Um, and I signed up for one of these prep schools, and it was run by um, Muslims, you know, a nation of uh, Islam Muslims in Boston. And the, my teacher said, you know, because I had been out of high school for about 10 years, but I remembered all the mathematics that we had. You know, I had remembered all this calculus and trigonometry and stuff. And the man said, you're brilliant. Hmm. You're brilliant. You, you might be considered a genius. Yeah, you'd and, never heard that before. I, I'd never heard any of this before. I mean, this was just wonderful. I, this right. was just, this was amazing, you know. And so on the strength of my girlfriend, her name was Karen, on the strength of Karen's encouragement and um, affirmative action and uh, the Nation of Islam's teacher that was running the schools, uh, encouragement, you know, I thought I could just do anything. And so that was the beginning of my turning things around. Now, I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, all I knew was that I didn't want to continue doing what I was doing. I was trained as a plumber. My father was a plumber. You know, he took me to work with him when, he was, when I was 10 years old. I had been doing it for 20 years. I know how to do it. Never licensed in it, but I knew how to do it. But, and so I didn't know what I wanted to do. All I knew was what I didn't want to do. Right. You know, and so then I went to school. I, he, he got me into the uh, College of Pharmacy. You know, um, they were looking for affirmative action students. And so uh, I signed up for that, went to school there, and um, had a course in social science, really liked the social sciences, really wanted to try to understand why I did the things I did. I wasn't even thinking of using it as a profession. I just wanted to understand Mm -hmm. myself. But 15 years later, after starting college here, you have a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. What an achievement. Yeah, that's kind of nice. That's you know, amazing. I'm, I mean, from, from your beginnings to that and all the challenges you went through, uh, obviously you're saying, if I can do it, others can do it. Yes, right. And so when I decided to write the book, you know, I wanted to, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to write an auto. I wasn't looking to write an autobiography as much as I was looking to write a book um, that would help other people overcome some of their difficulties. Right. And, and so... To do that, I used my autobiography as an example of what can be overcome. And so in the first half of my book, it's autobiographical, and the second half of the book um, is more clinical and psychological, where I talk about the different things a person can do to um, overcome their difficulties and, 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 and not return to prison, you know, because... Not only am I a clinical psychologist, I'm a forensic clinical psychologist, which means that I do evaluations on defendants to see if they're competent to stand trial, mm-hmm. and whether or not they're sane or insane when they committed their offense, and um, evaluations on uh, sex offenders to determine their level of dangerousness. What's so your- that's what I do as a clinical psychologist, because I'm a forensic clinical psychologist. What's your view on the war on drugs? The war on drugs is a joke. The war on drugs was, is, is political. It was started by uh, Richard Nixon. He's, he's the one that kind of mouthed it. 
you know, um, as a way to get elected because, you know, politically he wanted to be seen as being tough on crime. And being tough on crime has always been something that politicians see as a positive thing to get people to vote for them. So that's why he started it, that, 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 that whole concept. You know, and then it was um, Reagan who really um, put it into action, you know, in terms of really putting some teeth behind it and setting it up so that the police jurisdictions would get paid according to how many people they put in prison for, for drug, for drug abuse, for substance abuse. So they weren't subsidizing the... the um, the capture of murderers or rapists or, or thieves, you know, police departments in the United States were not getting extra money for that, but they were getting extra money for putting people in prison for drug, for substance abuse or, or being or substance possession, you know. So that's kind of what um, uh, 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 the war on drugs is about. It's not about um, trying to help anyone. Not about treatment. About Putting all that money into treatment would have gone much further. I mean, we may not have anything like we have today. Well, that's what other, we are the only industrialized country that treats substance abuse as a crime instead of an illness. Mm -hmm. You know, other countries, other industrialized uh, nations like uh, Sweden, you know, they, they treat their uh, 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 substance abusers. They treat them. They don't put them in prison. So it, 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 it's an American attitude. We as Americans, and I'm not talking about African Americans, just Americans, we incarcerate more than twice as many people than any other country on the planet, including Russia, mm. which incarcerates a lot of people too. Mm -hmm. You know, we incarcerate more than everybody else. So the design wasn't, the war on drugs wasn't designed to help anybody that is addicted to drugs. The war on drugs really only helps the, um, the, the, the prison business, the business of having prisons and right. running prisons, which is why now, you know, um, there are privately owned prisons. <laughs> the big business. Big it's, business. It's big, it's big business. Well, it's Doctor, we need to uh, find out how to get your book. You certainly, what a story, and, and you have proven true to the, tra to the tradition. Of when you get to where you're going, don't forget where you've been. And so you're doing that and sharing where you've been and um, what the great things you've been able to accomplish. Roxbury Redemption, Dr. Earl Williams. Doctor, tell us how to get your book. Well, um, there, are, there are many ways to get it. You can um, uh, get, uh, order my book from Amazon.com. You, know, um, you can also go to my publisher, Ex Libris, and order the book. Or you can get it directly from me, and if you do, then it can be autographed um, from uh, Dr. Uh, D-R-E-A-R-L-E.com, DrEarl.com. Oh, great. DrEarl.com. That makes it real easy, like he said, Earl, E-A-R-L-E. -E. Well, thank you, Dr. Williams, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Okay, well, thank you for the opportunity to share. 
Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.